Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Boshcast. This week, we're starting a brand new series, Overlooked and Underrated. I'm here with my co-host, A.P. Velasco. Hello, everybody. And we are covering the 2009 film, Tron Legacy. So the first time I saw this film was actually, uh, I remember the date perfectly. It was uh, New Year's Eve 2009, and I was going to a New Year's party um, directly after at my karate studio. Um, <laughs> so I, I directly remember going from this movie to 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 this this Halloween uh, excuse me this New Year's party and trying to tell everyone like oh my god this movie was actually really good and nobody believed me because it looked like a you know a stupid Disney hack job and probably because you also still had like your karate belt on and you were trying to convince everybody no 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 this was the New Year's party we didn't have to wear our karate uniforms it was just at the karate studio what if you wore your uniform to the New Year's party I can see you as a child being like this is so cool yeah definitely so Tron Legacy is a film released in 2009 starring Garrett Hedlund, Jeff Bridges, and Olivia Wilde. Uh, it takes place in a world following the events of the original Tron, which came out in 1982, a world in which a character named Kevin Flynn is taken into the world of a video game that he invents called Tron. Um, he has to fight Big Bad Dude and saves the civilization that has formed inside of the grid. Tron Legacy takes place about 25 years later, um, a time in which Kevin Flynn has vanished and abandoned his son to live with his grandparents. Um, His son's name is Sam Flynn, and he has uh, grown up to resent his father and is also the largest shareholder in the company, which kind of comes back um, in the film because he exerts kind of corporate control over all of um, Encom, which is the company that his father owned and started. Which is now, you know, he does, he has a kind of hands-off approach, and he ends up stealing from the company, but it's fine, because fuck him, it's a billion-dollar company, who cares? Capitalism, just let it burn, baby. Yeah, let it burn. Let it burn, baby. Um, Sam Flynn goes to track down his father after receiving a message from him, and ends up in the world of the grid, which is now no longer kind of a, uh, a very stark 2D animated world like it was in 1982, but rather a fully fleshed-out, blue-screen, uh, uh, 3D world. Um, that's kind of defined by LED lights accenting everything, dark skies, and a really, really interesting kind of underworld. Um, There he meets uh, Olivia Wilde's character, as well as a clone of his father that his father created in order to help run the grid. Um, But the clone turned evil, thinking that his father was just kind of incompetent and not really doing what needed to be done, um, and favoring a new group of people um, who were these spontaneous creations uh, in the in the world of the grid that he didn't kevin flynn did not create himself but the ai within the system learned how to create its own quote-unquote life and these people called the isos became they became basically essentially migrants into the the people of the grid to the programs of the grid clue which is jeff bridges character's clone uh turns out he's just kind of computer racist and <laughs> decided that he hates these people and that his, you know, his creator, Kevin Flynn, um, liked them more than the people, the programs of the grid and was favoring them. So he wiped them all out. He committed a coup and Kevin Flynn's lieutenant was corrupted and brought to the side of Clue. And now Kevin Flynn hides in the outlands outside of like the major city um, as a refugee and with the last ISO. Uh, who is Cora, um, Olivia Wilde's character. Our queen. Yeah. 
So, EP, when was the first time you saw Tron Legacy? January 3rd of 2010 at the okay. Palladium Theater in San Antonio, Texas. And I remember I went with my entire family. My dad was super excited because he had seen the first Tron when it came out. I remember very vividly that it had received a B-plus in Entertainment Weekly because I was really into that and my sole thing was reading Entertainment Weekly uh, movie reviews. And so knowing absolutely nothing about the letter scale and knowing that B-plus was, I guess, okay, we went to see it. And it really wasn't until I watched it over the pandemic that I grew to appreciate it a little more for what it was, especially being 2009, 2010, when, you know, we were having all these advances, advances in CGI, uh, we were just kind of starting to see this development of how sound mixing can be used in film. So, you know, even though I didn't appreciate it in the moment, because, you know, I was 10, what do you appreciate when you're 10? Nothing. You know, looking back, I'm like, wow, this was a great film, like, for what it was worth and its time and the acting and not to mention Daft Punk, which I will always rave about because R.I.P. are kings, Daft Punk. It's a great film. Yeah, so this episode, for context, um, in case anyone's listening a thousand years in the future, because they would definitely choose this podcast and not just anything more famous, um, Daft Punk, within the past, what, two weeks, recently announced that they're retiring, they're not making any more music. Also, Daft Punk, I actually know their real names. Uh, Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homecristo, also known as Daft Punk. Damn, well, they're going to come after you now now that you've revealed their real names. Yeah, I'm being hunted by the deep state. Yeah, if someone comes (laughs) knocking at your door at 3 a.m., you know exactly who it is. It's going to be yeah. Daft Punk. The deep state isn't some QAnon-style, lizard, Satan-worshipping, pedophile, also made up of Jewish people. It's actually just Daft Punk. It's Daft Punk ringing at your door. It's just two French... Get Lucky. Yeah, it's just two <laughs> French DJs and Pharrell Williams. You're going to hear Get Lucky, like, in the depths of your brain, like in Inception, when they start hearing that song that reminds them that they're about to be swept back to consciousness. Yeah. Except it's going to be Get Lucky. Could you imagine being in Inception and the song that you choose isn't Edith Piaf but instead Get Lucky by Daft Punk I don't know if I'd want to wake up I don't yeah I don't think I'd want I think I just want to keep jamming I would keep jamming and I would just be like this is my reality just folding motherfucking cities on top of you while you're jamming to Pharrell Williams for the next 20 years Leonardo DiCaprio's totem just continues to spin and just being happy with that yeah that sounds awesome yeah maybe we should listen to Daft Punk (laughs) maybe we should listen to Daft Punk for all of you listening if you don't appreciate Daft Punk you should well they're dead now so it's fine Dead but not forgotten. Anyway, uh, so Tron Legacy, you mentioned that it got a B plus. Um, it's kind of widely regarded as pretty forgettable and mm-hmm. just kind of mediocre. Um, it's mostly regarded for uh, its special effects, which were really revolutionary at the mm-hmm. time and yep. really impressive, and still are. We'll get into that. Uh, but also for the score that we mentioned by by Daft Punk, mm-hmm. um, as well as it was a collaboration also with Joseph Trapanese, um, so which is really important because he's a pretty famous uh, film composer. So they composed a lot of the the kind of tech style stuff while he did he kind of helped them collaborate on like the more orchestral parts of the score because the score is equally very uh pixely and kind of tech based and then he comes in with like the traditional um like film symphony um but i think we should start off with kind of talking about the plot because I feel like that's the thing that's the most underrated about this film. I mean, there's obviously so, there's a billion aspects to every film, but if we're going to break it down into three, the three being um, the story, right? The story and the characters, Mm -hmm. the music, Mm -hmm. and the special effects. And in no particular order, we're going to go through all three of those. Yes. So starting off with the story, I think 
the biggest complaint is that the characters are kind of flat. And I don't entirely disagree with that, but I think the person who's most guilty of that is Sam Flynn, um, Garrett Hedlund's character. He is just kind of one note. And that's unfortunate because Garrett Hedlund actually is a really good actor. I believe he's in... Is it Sons of Anarchy? Um, I think he's in Sons of Anarchy. For He has a pretty extensive role in that show. Um, he is actually a pretty talented actor, but this was early on in his career where... And again, remember, this is 2009, so this is yeah. the era of um, Sam Worthington. Oh my god. I which is that. the generic... It's this wild era in Hollywood from like... 2007 until like 2013 maybe 2014 Mm -hmm. where hollywood just decided that this generic looking dude this generic looking white dude is gonna be the next big guy because this is right at the tail end of what like the movie star era which dominated hollywood from like basically the 60s until the two the 2010s so a movie like Avatar, which I am a defender of. AP, I know you're not a fan of James Cameron's I, Avatar. It's okay, because we're not here to talk about James Cameron's Avatar. We're going to talk about it one of these days. Anyway. I will be very intoxicated for that. I do not like it. But please carry on. Anyway. Um, you know, Avatar, previously the highest grossing film of all time, the weakest part of that film is the main character. And it's a similar thing um, with, with Garrett Hedlund, where... His character is underwritten. He's actually a good actor, and he sells the performance that he's supposed to give. The problem is that the performance that he has to give is pretty stoic. There's, like, two moments of genuine vulnerability that he gets to share with his dad. But for the most part, it's just him saying, We have to get to the portal. We have to get back. And his dad saying, No. I don't want to. Which, like, for what? Like, I'm sorry, but my man does not exactly have an exciting life other than stealing his long-lost father's computer software to release to the world. Like, motorcycles, cool. I mean, he rides sick-ass motorcycles and lives in a really cool apartment overlooking Seattle, which I know you're famously fond of, so I kind of feel like he's living the life. Also, he's definitely getting honeys. Okay. For sure. would I want to ride a motorcycle in real life or in the grid? I mean, motorcycles in real life are pretty cool, so... I mean, the motorcycles in the grid are pretty cool. Well, all right. They're Except both cool. You can crash into the tail end and die. Right, exactly. But to be fair, you can crash and die on real motorcycles. In fact, it's pretty likely that you will. But not because of the tail end light that shines off the motorcycle. Fair enough. It's mostly just because some asshole in a Subaru is driving way too fast looking at their phone. But anyway, um, I think that one of the things that's so uh, that's so compelling about Sam's character is that you do genuinely feel sorry for him that his dad is not in his life anymore and i think that's really put forward by um, a character who is originally um who was kevin flynn sam's dad's um kind of partner when creating ncom i believe his name is alan mm-hmm. um and he is a little bit of like a surrogate father mm-hmm. um especially after it's implied that sam flynn's grandparents died um who they became the 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 custodians and Alan became the the kind of custodian of the company um, because it was assumed that Sam would come and take over because he was also a computer wiz. Um, Obviously Sam didn't want that life probably because he resented his dad because it wasn't like his dad mysteriously went missing. Um, His dad went missing because he left. Right. He's in the film. Right. He he gets in the car and leaves. Exactly. It's not like he was like mysteriously kidnapped and that's the, the, I mean, I'm sure some people thought that, and obviously within the world there was probably an investigation. But 
I'm assuming that Sam probably blames his dad for leaving and oh. blames Sam's trauma on him leaving. He saw his father physically leave in, I don't even remember, it was, I think it was a motorcycle in the movie. It shows a flashback and you see a vastly de-aged Jeff Bridges, which I yeah, do have a bit of a kind of spongy-faced yeah, Jeff Bridges. like, good for them. It was 2010. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's not good for them. People pointed it out then. But I will say, I recently rewatched uh, the Francis Ford Coppola movie called Tucker, The Man in His Dream about, uh, I can't remember his full name, um, but a man named Tucker uh, tried to take on the automotive industry and create an affordable car. I believe it was in the 1950s. Um, and he gets totally shut down because he, quote unquote, violated a bunch of patents. It's total like corporate America bullshit. Um, you know, he got screwed over by basically the entire city of Detroit trying to build this car factory. Um, it's a really good uh, Coppola movie. I, I would highly recommend it. Um, but Jeff Bridges, you know, he's a young guy in that in that movie. It was made, I think, in the mid '80s. And I, I made a comment to a friend of mine when I was watching it. I said, "So Jeff Bridges' face has always looked kind of weird and plasticky. It's not just in the prequel, like in the the CGI de-aged parts of Tron Legacy. Because if you watch that movie, like Jeff Bridges, stick to having a beard. There's something weird about his face. That yeah. it's just kind of doughy." Yes. Like, I, I want to put my fingers in it. Like, it's pizza dough. Like, what was it? Crazy Stupid Heart? What was the movie he won, he won the Oscar for? Crazy Stupid... It was 2010, the exact same year that Tron came out. You don't know what I'm talking about, but we basically... True Grit? No, he did not win for True Grit. He was nominated for True Grit. He did not win for True Grit. Crazy Stupid Love? No, not Crazy Stupid Love. It's where he's an old country singer. I believe he's, like, has gone to rehab. He's sober. Okay. Well, anyway, he you keep fa- talking. I'm going to look this well, up. Well, anyway, he had facial hair in that movie. He won. I'm going to say that it was not only his acting chops, but the facial hair that got him that nomination and that win. Because I do be believing. I do be concurring with Daniel. Crazy Heart. Okay, crazy well, Heart. Well, you said Crazy Stupid Love. Okay. So, which is a completely different film. But that's okay. All right. Anyway, he does kind of look a little doughy, but we love him anyway. He's kind of an American treasure, if you will. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bridges, the Lebowski, just what a great guy. Also, Jeff Bridges, get well soon, my man. Hope you're feeling right. Mm, if you're listening, we love you. We hope the best for you. I mean, he's the dude. He'll be fine. Let's yeah. be real. He's going to he's gonna kill it. He's going to kill it. I wonder what he's up to these days other than, you know. Probably just getting high. Respect. Kind of living the dream except for, you know, being... Having cancer. Yeah, you know, being ill. <laughs> it's fine. It's okay. I can laugh about that. I had a relative with cancer. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway... One of the, I mean, I think Jeff Bridges does give a genuinely really good performance in this movie. You know, he shows up and he's like this kind of Jesus figure, right? He's yes. he's meditating and he's in these white robes. He's got like the the shirt with like the Nehru collar. He's got like some jade going on. He's got yeah, he's got like some cool ass Tron jewelry. Yeah. Um, the sick ass long hair and the big old thick juicy beard. Yes, yeah, uh, with the beard. He looks awesome. He looks so cool. And he's so... He comes across as a little bit otherworldly. Um, he gives off a very Obi-Wan Kenobi vibe. Honestly? Which yeah. I think is really cool. I mean, he's less... He's a, he's less uh, uh, silly than uh, Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. in A New Hope. But he still really... Uh, he still has like a very sarcastic sense of humor. I think the writing actually does a good job of keeping his sense of humor from the original. I don't know how long it's been since you saw the original Tron. Um I mean, the special effects don't necessarily hold up. They're really cool to look at because it's like, you know, from a bygone... It's the same reason, like, the way that, like, when you watch the original King Kong, Mm. it's not convincing, but you're like, damn, those are cool-ass special effects. Like, this movie came out in the 1930s, and it looks awesome. 
It's the same thing with the original Tron. Um, unlike Star Wars, where like the original Star Wars holds up so well, oh, right? Impeccably good. Yeah. You know, the original Tron does not necessarily hold up, but it's a relic of its time. You know, it's Absolutely. not it's not dated in the way that something like the first X Men, some of that CGI looks yeah. pretty gross. Um, Tron, the original Tron from nineteen eighty two, actually, uh, you know, it contributed a lot to special effects, and it's it's really impressive, um, but. But it obviously doesn't look as three-dimensional. It obviously doesn't look as three-dimensional as the second one. But, like you said, it does add this kind of, this age of technology that, <clears throat> this age of technology that we saw. Right, and it's, it's, it's really, it's cool and it's playful, I think. And that's, again, getting back to Jeff Bridges' character. I went on a bit of a tangent about the special effects, which we'll get to. Um, but Jeff Bridges' character is kind of a playboy. It presents, it's funny, it presents a world in which guys who are gamers at arcades, like, get mad bitches. Yes. Like, it's so funny to me. There are, like, multiple shots of him, like, impressing, like, a crowd of girls and, like, walking off with his oh, arm around a few of them. Of it's very, I would say it's more Tony Starkish of him, because he's got that kind of bravado, which Jeff Bridges yeah. plays so well. Like, the tech guru but it's very like a it's like what if steve jobs was sexy kind of thing especially steve jobs from like the 80s right so like early apple like like the first mac or like mac 2 generation right um i think it's so you know his character is actually translated really well you can tell that despite the fact that like tron doesn't necessarily hold a big uh foothold in the cultural zeitgeist like star wars or i don't know superhero movies mm. do at this point you can tell that the people who made tron legacy the writers really did have a love for his character Absolutely. and did want to translate his personality over and you can really tell that you know he's got that same kind of sarcastic dry humor but he's an older man you know um if i you know like i have a very sarcastic sense of humor i constantly undercut things with you know with what I perceive as wit, but is mostly just annoying bullshit. You do. Um, <laughs> but when, but when I get older, I'm sure I'm still going to do that. But it's going to be a lot different. And I think that they evolved him. They do a really, you know, the film does not get enough credit for actually evolving his character in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of brings me to um, my next point before we move on to Olivia Wilde's character, who again deserves some serious credit. Always. So. I posit that Jeff Bridges' character in this film, Kevin Flynn, um, is has a very similar arc and a very similar setup to um, Luke Skywalker from Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. And if I had a sound machine right now, it would be the biggest groan and the little... So let me explain, listeners, and you can tell me <laughs> if I'm right or if I'm wrong. AP thinks I'm wrong. Actually, I don't think you're wrong. I've just heard this 3,000 times, and if I had a dollar for every time that I heard Daniel talk about The Rise of Skywalker, he would actually be able to remake. remake. Would you, okay, but would you rather that I re talk about The Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker? Neither. You get one or the other. I can be insufferable, but you got to pick one. I would rather you talk about The Last Jedi because at least... At least it's positive. Yeah, with least the Rise of Skywalker, it is just hell hath no fury. Like, like Daniel talking about the Rise of Skywalker. Let's this man rewrote way. a three-hour. We don't need to talk version. about. That, 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 we don't need to bring that up. Okay, actual people listen to this. 
So Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi starts off uh, as a character who has gone missing. And in fact, the entire inciting incident of the sequel trilogy is the heroes trying to keep the map to Luke Skywalker away from the villains. The entire, literally the first piece of, or the, 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 the first piece of exposition in the entire sequel trilogy that we receive is the sentence, Luke Skywalker is missing. That is the first sentence in the crawl of episode seven. So it's immediately set up that Luke Skywalker has gone missing for whatever reason. In the same way that the beginning of Tron Legacy establishes that Kevin Flynn went missing. We have this whole, uh, I, I would say probably 10 to 15 minutes, maybe even around that time, uh, where we, we very quickly establish a relationship between Kevin and Sam, and then he goes missing and it shows all of these media outlets reporting on it and Sam uh, being adopted by his grandparents and Alan taking over the company. We cut to a long period of time later where the main character receives a call. In Ray's case, it's the call from the Force um, and you know the First Order coming to her planet. Um, and in the case of Sam, it is the literal call from his from his dad and in a way Ray's is is very similar because she is uh she is called by the legend of luke skywalker she you know the map comes and she goes you know oh my god luke is is real i didn't realize he was you know an actual person exactly and now i'm going to now i'm going to search for him so exactly both sam and ray while they are very different characters they do kind of come into this same situation where they go to this person expecting one thing Right, so Ryan Johnson, when he was talking about The Last Jedi and about the response to The Last Jedi, one of the things that he talked about was the kind of saying of don't meet your heroes mm -hmm. because they're going to disappoint you. So Sam, while he definitely resents his father, also still looks up to him and true. still would probably want nothing more than to be reunited with him and to have that same amazing relationship that he had as a kid or that he remembers as a kid. Um you know, because obviously nobody's perfect, and Kevin Flynn is very clearly established as not being an amazing dad. Far from. Despite far being, from. despite being a good person, he is, you know, he spends every every, you know, he spends extended periods of time in the grid. No, homeboy literally left on a Thursday night on his motorcycle and said, "I will be back," and then did not show up for about twenty plus years. In his defense, he got trapped there. But anyway, are you going to make the correlation between who sent Kevin, or excuse me, who sent Sam to the grid and who connected? Um, Luke and Ray. I mean, I think there is some because Alan is a character in the original Tron. Oh, no, no, no. I was gonna. Alan say... essentially is the Han Solo who shepherds Sam to Kevin, and Han shepherds Han and Leia really shepherd Ray to Luke. Well, something I you know it's it it is correlated and it's not correlated, but I just remembered that you know in Tron you have this moment where Clue reveals that he was the one that sent out the pager message to Alan. And he says, right. you know, and he, so he reveals at the end, it wasn't Kevin that sent this to you. It wasn't your dad, Sam. It was me because I wanted to reopen this portal. Right, yeah. And then in the, in, in, um, in the Last Jedi, in the Last Jedi, you have this moment where it's obviously not the same thing, but, you know, you had this connection between Kylo and Rey, and it was by Snoke. Right. I think the difference, though, here, and, uh, and you know, it, it's not an airtight theory i just there's a lot of similar points and i'll, I'll keep going because it, it doesn't just stop here um uh, clue the main antagonist of the film yes. sent the message to the main protagonist of the film yes in the last jedi while snoke does connect ben and uh, ben and ray um you can see my ship 
showing because I called him Ben and not Kylo Ren. Um, anyway, I won't say. I won't say anyway, um, he doesn't send Ray to Luke. Ray goes to oh, Luke. Really? Not through direct action by Snoke, but rather by the general action of the First Order rising and sure. Kylo Ren getting stronger. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's not nearly at, it's not like Snoke somehow forced her to go, like manipulated her. So, I mean, I guess in a way he, he indirectly caused her to go mm-hmm. by, you know, building up the First Order, but uh, not in the exact same sense. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, Sam and Ray both get to the place where. Their, um, their supposed mentor figure, what is traditionally supposed to be a mentor figure, right? Luke, you know, uh, is, we're expecting Luke to be the Obi-Wan to Rey, to be mm-hmm. the, the, the master who has hidden out for a while because he knows that the next generation is going to need Luke help. To Rey. You said Obi-Wan to Rey. Excuse me. Uh, Luke is going to be to Rey what Obi-Wan was to him. You call yourself a Star Wars fan. Listen, I'm thinking on the fly here. In the same way, right, and in the same way, we think Sam is going to get there, and Kevin is going to be leading the rebellion against Clue and all these kinds of things. Um, And he's not. Neither of these characters are. In fact, they've both kind of given up. They've both been meditating forever. They just want to be left alone. Right. And visually speaking, I mean, Kevin thought he was going to die in the grid, and Luke Skywalker literally says, "I came to this island to die." You know, because he's ashamed, and they're both ashamed. Kevin is ashamed for a lot of reasons. One, because the ISOs got literally genocided, and it was by his creation, right? It was inadvertently him uh, creating Clue, and then also, you know, quote unquote, favoring the ISOs um, that led to him being um, exiled, mm-hmm. needing him to run away, and for his best friend within the grid um, to be captured and turned, you know, quote unquote, to the dark side. Um, you know, oh they, they have orange, red stuff for a reason, okay? I'm just saying lightsaber colors mean something. Yeah. They do. The bad guys are orange and the good guys are blue. And green. Not everything is connected. Are you telling me that I'm wrong? Are you going to look me in the eyes and you're going to tell me that the green Tron and the blue Tron cycles are not on the same team while the red ones are on another? Well, there's no green, it's just blue. No, there are green ones if you look. There are different shades of blue and green. They slowly, it's just they're one slow gradient. nice electric turquoise. No, no, no. There is green. If you go back and watch the film again, I'm telling you right now. If you looked up a, uh, if you looked up the scene on your phone, I'm telling you, there's green in there. It's not like neon green like Luke's lightsaber, but it's green. Anyway, I'm both annoyed and unimpressed. this is not to say that like Star Wars copied Tron. It's oh, these are not. these They're are very different. Blue has always kind of signified good, right? It's yes. kind of why Superman and Spider Man wear blue. Why hmm, this is arguable. Why cops wear blue although i don't know if that's really i really think that you like were doing really well you're doing an incline and now you just like but i'm just saying right like the cultural perception in terms of movies blue is supposed in copaganda blue is good red is bad right red lightsabers are bad um uh, the red lanterns in the dc universe are bad um, cause it's, you know, it's the color of blood. There's a lot of primordial things that you're playing to, Which is to, very right? Western, because when you look at other cultures, red and blue mean very different Absolutely. Things, I mean, red you know? in South Asian culture is a, it's a color of fertility. Yeah. Women wear red on their, uh, during their weddings. And yeah. white is, is for, for funerals. So yes. again, humans, we, yeah, color theory is not universal. Um, but in this case, among the Western cultures, red equals bad, uh, blue equals good. In the same way that, you know, black equals bad and white equals good, which... I mean, I guess could be problematic, but we need to get into that. 
anyway. And you didn't bring it up, but it's okay. I think also visually speaking, um, the last time we saw Kevin Flynn, he had a very smooth face. His hair was a little bit shorter. So the much. last time we saw Luke in the Star Wars saga, he had shorter hair and a smooth face. Right. And we get to him, and now he's this kind of jagged old man with a weird, crusty beard and long hair. And it's the same thing with Kevin Flynn. Um, we see them both. The first shot of them is overlooking their domain. In the case of Luke, it's standing on the edge of the cliff, looking over the island, looking over the ocean. And in Kevin's case, it's him sitting there meditating over uh, over this this beautiful dark vista um, that reaches out like the desert and then into the city. Um, so you've got the same establishing shots of these characters and both of their hideouts, right? Both of their homes are perched over something. They're high up because they've ascended to a level um, that is beyond what the main character, whether it's Ray or Sam, uh, is coming from. So they're literally ascending to the top, right? They're going to meet the master in a way they're like, you know, maybe going to meet um, a god in a way. You know, Luke Skywalker is a legend to the people of the galaxy, and Kevin Flynn is literally the creator of the grid, right? I mean, if you if you want to go into these archetypes, um, it, you know, Ben Solo, if he is Lucifer Morningstar, who has fallen and become the Prince of Darkness, Satan, Clue. then Clue is yeah. an even an even more direct allegory. Um, to to Lucifer becoming Satan and falling because he was an ally and then he became and then he turned people against him. You really brought Satan into this. I really did. I brought the Bible into you this. Really brought it's it. the greatest story ever told. <laughs> There's a saying in Spanish, "Ni tú te la crees," which means you don't even believe that, and you don't even believe that. I mean, listen, the Matrix rules, and that's basically just a Bible story. So, you know, so is RoboCop. Okay. Anyway, you do see. I do agree with Daniel. Not between the comparison between The Last Jedi I'm and also Sean. still not done, so just keep going. I know you're not done, but at the same time, I know that if I do not stop this man, he will continue to talk about this for the rest of the podcast. Please let me finish. I promise I'll be concise. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. Okay. Okay, so the whole thing is don't meet your heroes, right? And the main characters both come in believing that their mentor, whether it's Sam's dad or Luke, are going to save the day. They're going to be the ones that help the protagonist conventionally defeat the bad guy. In the end, however, both characters realize, and this is more pronounced in The Last, I think it's better done in The Last Jedi, but Tron does still, I think, a decent job with it, where um, Kevin really learns that he does have to take a stand and he does have to, um, you know, be, become the symbol and, and, and stand against the oppression that he, in turn, through his failure, created. Um, but he learns also that he can't do it through fighting in the same way that Luke learns um, that he's not going to go there and fight, right? The whole last standoff is him basically stalling so the resistance can get away. Oh, that scene is so good. Oh, God. And this, so the, the footprints in yeah. assault. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that scene is... Hot take. The Last Jedi is, uh, is a fantastic film. Please stay tuned for another episode where Daniel will talk about that for about two hours. I'm actually thinking I'm going to spare the listeners from that. I think it would be too much. Oh, well, you haven't spared me from it, so thank you for that. Well, I have to be benevolent to the to the listeners. But not to AP. Absolutely not. Okay. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the film, right, Luke takes this stand not by being violent, but by stalling and letting the new, literally handing things off to the new generation. And it's the same thing with Sam, where he admits that he failed Clue. You know, there's the line in the, I've memorized this movie at this point, but there's a line in The Last Jedi where Luke literally says, he goes, I failed you, and I'm sorry. And it's the same thing with 
with uh, Kevin Flynn where he tells Clue, he's like, I'm sorry, you know, I did favor the ISOs because I was so enamored with their perfection and the idea that the artificial intelligence in the grid had created life. And I was enamored by it that I neglected, you know, my creation, my son. So in a way, it's literally God apologizing to Satan for creating humanity. Um, and I think that's, I think, you know, and so he ends up, he sacrifices himself for the greater good and gives the tools to better the world to the next generation by basically, I mean, creating a wasteland. He, he destroys the grid in the process as Sam and Korra go through the portal back to Earth um, and destroys it in the process, destroys Clue in the process. And Luke doesn't destroy things, but he does allow for the resistance to get away in order to fight another day. You know, he has that whole speech where the war is just beginning the rebellion is reborn again today, and I will not be the last Jedi. I just got chills. Um, and it's the same thing. You know, Kevin Flynn has that really iconic line, or at least it's iconic to me, where he says, um, you know, your, your imperfections are what make you perfect to me. Um, and he's talking, he's telling that to his other, quote-unquote, son, right? The angel that became the devil that he created. Which I have to ask, do you think that there's any homoerotic tension between Kevin and Flynn? Because... I don't think that there is exactly... You mean Kevin and Clue? Kevin and Clue. Gotcha. Because um, I don't think that there is, if you're going to make, you know, we're going to go continue going on this endless comparison that I will just give into for three seconds. It stops here. <laughs> anyway, because you've spoken about this for a moment, I'm going to inter- interject. Um, do you think there's any of that tension between Kylo and Luke, or do you think it was more of like the student and the master? It is a student and the master and an uncle and nephew relationship. Again, mm-hmm. we don't, unfortunately, we just don't get enough of that. Um, and that's not the film's fault. It's just the reality of timing. Sure. Um, you know, I, if I could snap my fingers, I'd love to go back and see a young Luke, younger Luke, right in his forties, interacting with a teenage Ben Solo, um, as, as he's training them. And in fact, if you read, um, the Rise of Kylo Ren comic, um, from Marvel, which is actually a really solid series, it kind of shows Ben Solo's resentment growing and it gives a lot of great explanation as to, you know, Luke's interpretation of the Force and uh, it, it's, it's actually a really great comic. I would highly recommend it. But you do get a little bit of that relationship and it shows Luke um, being a teacher, trying to balance being a, an uncle to Ben, but also a teacher to the other students who know that Ben is his nephew. So they're already expecting favoritism, and he has to balance that. And, it, you know, again, it focuses mostly on Ben, but you do see that in their lessons throughout. I think it's like four or five issues. Um, I'd highly recommend it. Um, but in, I, don't, I don't think it's homoerotic subtext. I mean, I think you can argue. I think there, there is definitely, and I'm not the person to argue this, but I think there are, are certainly scholars or people who could interpret almost any interaction uh, of tenderness between two characters of the same sex. Mm-hmm as homoerotic and that's a perfectly valid interpretation i don't want to take that away from somebody but personally i don't see it like that mm-hmm. I, i'm not opposed to it you know i'm somebody who ships finn and poe in star wars so i'm you know i'm all here for making my characters gay as hell um i just don't think in this particular interpretation it's it's uh, deliberate homoerotic well, subtext well i don't know if it's deliberate and like i don't think it was even like it wasn't supposed to happen. Like, I just think that's the vibe that I definitely remember watching when I was 10, and I was just like, there's a vibe here, which I think my vibes are pretty solid. And in the film, you see that, you see Kevin, who obviously has created Clue, which, as Daniel said, is like this angel fallen from grace, um, but he also has Tron. And you kind of see that Kevin favorites 
Tron. And that is kind of why Clue turned against him, or against both of them. And it's almost out of, like, this jealousy. Like, there's no, you know, later he does come out and say, Clue does, that he wanted to build something greater and better, and he wanted the power that Kevin had. But you don't really see this rage come out until you see Kevin and Tron start to have, like, this more buddy-buddy relationship. So it's almost out of envy. So I kind of saw it a little more as, you know, like this tension there. He almost may love him. Yeah. In a way. Like he loved him. It looked like he loved Tron Tron a little more and favored him a little more because to Kevin, Tron was more perfect than Clue was because he created Clue from himself. So it's like he literally did like the Adam and Eve and took the rib and was like, you are. Yeah. I mean, he literally did. Yeah. He's like, you are me. And he even has a moment. He's like, I am where he, Kevin tells him you are Clue, and Clue's like, I am Clue, and he's like, you will protect the grid, I will protect the grid, and so when he sees Kevin, and he sees him going out with Tron, he's like, well, as another version of Kevin, why can I not be loved like that, whereas you have in The Last Jedi, you have something very different, which I agree, which is why I asked about if you thought there was a homoerotic tension between Kylo and I certainly hope not. I don't think there is. Because space incest would just be weird. I'm okay with it in, um in my game of thrones but it's it's, well that's what i'm saying is like in my fantasy i'm okay with it in game of thrones because it serves a purpose but in star wars please don't make relatives fuck please john favreau no incest in the mandalorian if john favreau if you are listening to this no incest and please don't dh luke never ever 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 make another live action lion king please for the love of god anyway do everyone's eyes a favor anyway but, you know, like, in The Last Jedi, you do see, like, this relationship, but it is very much more, like, the teacher and student, because you don't see that, or at least we don't get, like, that subtext, like you said. We don't get that story where Luke is favoriting other students. Kylo very much feels like if he doesn't do something, Luke will do something to him. Right. I mean, he feels betrayed because, in his defense, Luke did, for a moment, consider killing his nephew in order to uh, uh, keep people safe because he saw the the hurt that he was going to cause and all the destruction yeah. that he was going to cause by his fall to the dark side. Um, you know, Kevin Flynn didn't necessarily see that. He didn't see it coming because he was too preoccupied with, with Tron and with um, with the ISOs. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a really interesting point, AP. I had not thought of any sort of homoerotic interpret, you know, any queer interpretation of uh of the relationship between clue and kevin but that's a really that's a really interesting point i would want to read a paper digging into that i feel like if someone were going to write a paper though on homoerotic subtext in uh like underrated movies i think the last one they would pick is tron legacy like i don't think we're gonna get because it's so little there's so little you can pick up on like there's no like at least in the film like there's not really that backstory you just see like this very weird creation and tension right it's very up to interpretation but, and again, as somebody who is not part of that community, like, I don't know, if, I don't think I'm the one to speak on it, but that's just something that I picked up. Yeah. That can very much just be, that is, again, up for interpretation. I don't think that there's enough layers to, like, go super into it. But 10-year-old me was like, something going on here. Right. You know, 2010 me was like, hmm. I guess I would argue that it's more of a father-son thing in the same way that he, that, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the film is about daddy issues, let's be real. Um... Absolutely. It's about daddy Absolutely. issues, which is most I claim movies. This film. Which is mo- I claim this film on that. Which is most movies, to be fair. If there's a guy and his dad in a movie, the movie's about daddy issues. Um, which, like, at every male Hollywood writer, who hurt you? Their dad. It was daddy. 
but this movie is ultimately about daddy issues um and and legacy right the movie is called tron legacy yes, yeah. um, and while that's a pretty generic title for what's what i think what has commonly been referred to especially in the past 10 years is like the legacy sequels so your force awakens is your jurassic worlds your oh god just all of these movies that are a continuation right it's kind of a soft reboot your creeds um and that's not to knock on these movies apart from jurassic world which sucks nuts um you know, Force Awakens and Creed, I think, are actually good movies, um, despite serious flaws. Um, you know, they are kind of rehashes of the original film. They're uh, um, they're effective for a reason. It's because they kind of just capture the formula it's of the first rough, one. Yeah, I would argue in some ways. Right. Well, that's what I mean. Is Creed is a rehash Virgin. of Virgin. the first Rocky, Virgin, yeah. right? And that's why it works so well. Yeah. Because it's just so much fun, and it's fun to see Sylvester Stallone's character um, just become the you know the obi-wan yes to um adonis creed michael b jordan's adonis creed um and so for me i think i see it more as a father-son while he looks the same age as jeff Bridges did when he created him clue is for all intents and purposes kevin's son mm-hmm. rather than what i would guess his lover um I would say if there is love there, it is a father son. It is a creator loving his creation. Um, so the Adam and Eve comparison, I don't think is is off base at all. But it's funny that we're t- going from an Adam and Eve, or really an Adam, in the Garden of Eden before the grid is created and the world is corrupted, to then going to like a Paradise Lost, fall of oh Satan. I think that's interesting. Like it's like the weirdest fan fiction. Like I love how like we're obsessed with the idea of evil Superman. Um, I would love uh, Bible fanfiction where it's evil Adam. Oh my god. Right? Where it's like he can, well, like he gaslights Eve into eating the apple or some shit like that. Which I'm sure he did, let's be honest. At the Catholic Church, please don't come for me. For two agnostic bitches, we're talking a lot about the Bible. Well, uh, listen, here's the re- this is the reality. Um, even for people who are not religious, you really are going to, even if you don't want to, you are going to pick up on so much religious subtext Absolutely. in... in um, in movies that are not even religious films, right? They're not premiering on pure flicks. They don't star Kevin Sorbo. Um, <laughs> they're not produced by uh, Joel Osteen or whoever the fuck. Yeah. Um, or any of these televangelists. Um, but again, these are movies made in, for Western audiences by Western creators for the most part. And so they're going to be influenced, and they're influenced by literature that is influenced by literature that is influenced by Christian literature, which is influenced by the Bible. So, you know, all of these things are tracing back to, like, The Matrix is not really a religious film, no. right? I mean, the, the movie ends with uh, the, the song Wake Up by Rage Against the Machine, um, who constantly talk about, um, like, the brainwashing of the church um, in, in uh, Western society. But, you know, Neo's, Neo basically, like, literally becomes God. And in The Matrix sequels, he becomes, you know, ma- robot Jesus, um, and the machines are God, and uh, Agent Smith is Satan. You know, it, it's it's not even, like, Neo dies in a cross uh, pose. You know, so the Matrix, and obviously, you know, the Matrix sequels are criticized for a lot, and one of the things they are criticized for is being a little too on the nose about their Christian uh, iconography and, and, um, and themes. But, I, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say that, uh, you know, like, too um, agnostic or atheist uh, should not, uh, you know, touch on this because there's so m- it's, it's it's in so much uh, 
you can, I mean, Anakin Skywalker in a lot of ways can be seen as kind of like a, a bad Jesus or a Lucifer Morningstar to Obi-Wan and the Jedi's God or, you know, the angels. Um, and that came, you know, that, that's, you know, it's Star Wars. George Lucas is not outwardly religious at all. Um, he grew up, with the, you know, he grew up, I mean, he was in the Bay Area in the 19th, in the, the mid-1970s. Yeah. So, you know, not exactly the most religious dude in no, the world. My man was focused on going to the sand dunes, not church. <laughs> exactly. He was hanging out in Tunisia. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, Western literature is so heavily inspired by Christian mythology that it's um, it's natural that you're going to come across these things. Mm-hmm. There is Christ literature. I mean, Man of Steel has uh, Jesus imagery all through it, and that's because Zack Snyder sucks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's lazy to compare Superman to Jesus. I hate it. Um but it is there, and it's not an uh, it is not an uh, unfounded comparison to make. That's low hanging fruit. Uh, yeah, I would it. say it's a little bit basic. I think yeah. Superman, and I don't mean to offend anybody um, who may like a person of faith who may be listening to this. But I, I don't know. I I've read the Bible. I kind of think Superman's a better character than Jesus. He's got a better arc. I'm just he's a lot more relatable. But that's just me. That's just my thing. Um, Damn, you're too nice. I would have gone off on a completely different thing, but well, I respect. You know, I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to be democratic here. So, you know, I think I think the film gets a lot of flack for just kind of, I mean, what what people call like mediocre or middle of the road, and I don't think that's quite fair. Uh, again, the two aspects that are praised the most are the ones that we're going to move on to, which are the special effects and. Um, the score Mm -hmm. and so but one of the things that was one of the things that was criticized was the performances for being a little flat and I personally disagree with that but if if there are interpretations I would that that say the 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 performances of the characters are flat I would argue one of the things that causes that is acting on a blue screen yeah there's very little substance sometimes when you're acting on a blue screen I can definitely see that right so again I hate doing this but it's a great comparison it's in the back of my mind or right at the forefront the Star Wars prequels come to mind as a really good example of acting on a green screen not having physical environments it plays a really big part in acting when you are in a space being able to interact with it right being able to have props and just feel feel an environment around you plays a part in, in how you're acting versus just being on a green screen um, or in the case of Tron Legacy it was shot a lot on, on, on blue screen um, it, it, you're going to have trouble kind of relating to to the uh, to the surroundings and it does genuinely play a part I mean George Lucas's dialogue is not awesome and unfortunately Hayden Christensen is not an amazing amazing actor in any way shape or form yeah I mean, I don't want to disrespect him because, you know, he's gotten too much shit and I don't think he deserves it. But he's not, like, he's not the, he's not a Ewan McGregor, okay? He's just, he's just not, that's okay. He's not, you know, he's not an award-winning actor. Like, he's okay, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we can all agree that as much as blue screen, green screen has to do with these films, there's nothing that can absolutely apologize for Jar Jar Binks. Okay, well, we don't need to get into Jar Jar Binks. Um... (laughs) Get into it. No, I don't want to. Why not? Because Ahmed Best deserves the world. He has done nothing wrong, and I love that. Not the actor, just the character. Anyway, um, so again, you know, acting without an, with a physical environment around you can be really challenging, and I think that might have been a problem, especially for somebody who is not um, Olivia Wilde's character, which I really I want to quickly talk about AP because I know you have thoughts on her. I have so many thoughts. Um, I would really love to, to to hear them because I think 
her performance is is well done for what it's given but again i think the writing just doesn't do her a ton of favors the world building is really interesting um but tron ultimate i think the biggest failure of tron legacy and even i can say that as somebody who does unironically really enjoy this movie um uh, the the biggest the biggest weakness is the writing of the characters who are not clue and kevin and i think part of, you know other than them i think the characters do fall a little bit flat i just don't know their uh i know their motivation but i don't know if i'm sold on who they are well you know olivia wilde's character cora you know she's supposed to be an iso so she is very much supposed to be like this computer generated thing um that kevin created and of course, you have Sam and Kevin, who are real people. Right. And well, so actually, they have... sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but Cora was created by the the, the 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 grid that created ISO. So Kevin did not inherently necessarily create her. For sure, but she's he's not been a nurturing real... her. If but you she's will. not a real person. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please continue. Cora's not a real person. You know, quote unquote, real person. For all of you out there who have probably dreamt of Olivia Wilde as Cora, I apologize. But she's not a real person. And you can do with that information what you want. But Sam and Kevin are. And I would argue that the reason that Cora doesn't have as much depth, even though it does develop over time, is because she is this ISO. You know, you do have Sam who, you know, I don't think his performance was great. What was the actor's name again? Sam Edlund. Sam Edlund. Excuse me, Garrett Hedlund. <laughs> Garrett, Garrett Hedlund. Hedlund. Garrett Hedlund. Okay, Garrett Hedlund, no disrespect, my man. You're better in Sons of Anarchy, and I respect that. But in this film, his his character kind of fell flat for me, which writing, blue screen, whatever it is, Cora's character played by Olivia Wilde, I don't think it fell flat per se. I just think she was in character because again, she's supposed to be this ISO, this computer generated figure by the grid, and you see that all of these characters, except for Clue, who I would say has a lot more depth because he comes from the creator, all of the other characters kind of have this flat persona. Um, they're very much from the grid. And they're so kind of stoic almost. They're very sto- they're yeah. stoic almost an annoying way. Like, I'm expecting for them to like start reciting a sonnet, but at the same time, it's like I wouldn't want to hear the sonnet. You know, I don't know. It's just like, it cuss- it's, would it would kind of be like the sonnet would be self-serving, but that's not the point. But, you know, with Korra at least, you know, she has like a very small arc that obviously comes to fruition at the end when she's in the real world and she sees her her first ever sunrise and in that moment which i can't even explain to you the science behind an iso becoming a human i don't want to get into it i'm sure there's a way don't know it not scientist but her character is almost appropriate in my opinion what i find really interesting is that you know we find out towards the end that she is this final iso and you don't really know that for the majority of the film you right, just assume, you just assume she's a program. Yeah, that she's a helper kind. for Kevin, that while he's meditating, she's out running groceries. Like, you know, she's not, we don't really know what she does except for rescue Sam. Yeah. And then eventually leading him to Kevin. And you don't go into the end when you realize that she's actually like this last remaining beacon of hope, per se. Right, I think, I, I will say, I think you do, if you, if you go back on rewatch, I think you can see the clues that they leave. Um, there is a lot of shot reverse shot where it shows Kevin talking about the ISOs and then Cora, but that's not necessarily something that you're going to catch on the first because you're trying Absolutely to not. you're trying to absorb all of this exposition. You're right? trying to figure out what the no. grid is. Like it took me like three <laughs> times, and I was like, "What right. the hell is the grid?" Like I'd never, you know, I hadn't seen as a ten year old. I was not well versed in the science of the grid. I still am not well versed in the science. Well, of the no grid. one is because it's not real. But continue. well, let's pretend that some people are. I would not have been. 
Not even when I'm 22. But, you know, again, I think her character's pretty appropriate. I think that what they give her in terms of substance, unfortunately, in this in this paradigm is appropriate because, again, she's not, she's not given that human substance that you see between Sam, Kevin, and even Clue, which is why it's confusing with Clue because you right. do see these human emotions of envy and rage, whereas with Cora, she's very stoic. She's very almost like put together. She doesn't, she's not as erratic. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, she doesn't have those same, that same range of human emotions. And you know what? It's probably because the only person she knows is Kevin Flynn. Yeah. You know, and he is so emotionally shut off um, because of his failure in the same way that Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi is. He's completely shut off. Um, you know, he's literally shut himself off from the Force. And in the case of Kevin, he's shut himself off from the outside world and is refusing to, uh, he's completely given up hope. And it only takes his son and the uh, the ambitious young woman that he's been training. In this, in the case of Luke, it's the same person. Um, to catapult him back into action. Listeners, please drop a penny in the bucket every time Daniel mentions Star Wars or anybody in Star Wars. You will have a lot of money saved by the end. <laughs> but no, look, I agree. I I think watch you know as a young viewer when I first saw it. I again, you don't really think too much of it, but especially being older and watching this through a different lens, um, it's interesting to see a character who is very much made to be one dimensional, who does kind of end up developing some sort of range of emotion. She's kind of seen as, this, like I said, like this last beacon of hope. She's seen as like the savior, which is really interesting because she's carrying this in a way without her really knowing or wanting it. She's carrying like the savior complex of she's going to be the one to escape the grid, which we find out at the end she does with Sam, which again, could not tell you how that happens. I thought she was going to be pixelated, but she shows up at the end with a leather jacket and jeans. Right. Well, I think it's I think it's kind of an established that, um, or it's implied at least, that the ISOs are special in a way that they may be are uh, of some sort of hybrid of the of of human uh, human programming and the grid, um, like they you know I think to some extent uh, ISOs are a bit MacGuffin-y in the sense that they can kind of do whatever they need the plot to do, mm-hmm. and in this case it's get to the real world, um, right? Because she can fix humanity again. It's not really explained how. It's not really the point of the story, um, but in its defense, you know she is. She is implied to be the special of some kind. Well, if we're gonna go back to the Jesus analogy, like we've done, right? I could de- we could definitely connect it. Not so much as like the. She is probably. I mean, she's probably the closest thing to a Christ figure. Absolutely, which is interesting as a woman. Yeah. Being in film, like you can go back through. God is a woman. God is a woman. Shout out Ariana Grande. You can go back through three thousand films, and sure. look for this Jesus Christ God imagery right and in this one it's very subtle right because at the end if it was really christ imagery she would have been sacrificed i think because she would have been like this kind of too good for the world kind of deal well in a way she kind of is because she's sacrificed from the grid which is her world to a world that literally they shoot up into a portal like you are supposed to to go to heaven and into the real world and um you know at least the world that is established for them is this beautiful sunny right the last shot of them is her feeling the sun on her skin. Jesus, man. I'm telling you, it's in everything. Yeah, no, and again, so then would that make Sam Peter or John the Baptist? Like, who, who it, we don't need to get into direct allegory because, like, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> going back through my years of private school education and religion. Um, right. Nobody quote me for this. I am not an expert. I do not wish to be excommunicated from any church, even though I don't care. But I would kind of say that he's more of Whichever one didn't reject Jesus. <laughs> I always forget if it's John or Peter. There's one of them who rejected him three times. 
And then Jesus was like, you will reject me three times before the rooster crows. And then he's like, I'm not going to do it. And then he does do it, and then he cries. Right, right. I always forget if it's John or Peter. I think it's Peter. I think, I think John was hanging out for a moment. I think John was on board from the very beginning. Yeah, I think John, my man Juan, was just there. Well, see, I, I would argue that then Sam is John, not Peter. But that's... But John wouldn't take take Jesus to to the other side, you know? Like, John wasn't crucified with Jesus. I mean, he could very well be an amalgam, in the same way that Clue is kind of an amalgam of a bad ad of an Adam and also Satan, right? <laughs> when Clue is Satan. Right. That's so much. <laughs> I mean, when you look, when we talk about it like this, like it, it, it does check out. It does make sense. Like we're not, we're not crazy for thinking this. That is kind of, uh, it is right on the nose. If someone comes knocking at the door at 3 a.m. and it's the Catholic Church, y'all know where I went because I would not, like 10-year-old me right now is quaking yeah. thinking that she watched this at 10 and it was like just a bunch of Christian imagery. I mean, you saw the Matrix probably, you saw probably saw the Matrix five years before that and uh it didn't it didn't register so it's you know religious inculcation all of this all of this this subtext is it's just that it's subtext it's uh it's something that only a a douchey idiot who looks too deep into film would (laughs) is gonna notice or anybody who's read any christian literature ever anyway um i think Going back to the performances and on blue screen, that kind of brings us to the special effects, which is really, um, you know, it's one of the things that the film got a lot of uh, praise for. And I think, you know, while we were talking before about the special effects in the original Tron not really holding up, but being a relic of their time, I don't know about you, AP, but when I watched this, um, I did not find a lot of flaws in the CG that you, I think... um, you do with a lot of um, uh, CGI in in movies from around this era. I think, that, um, I think because it is abstract in a way, it mm-hmm. doesn't try to be photorealistic, except in the one case where it doesn't work, which is Clue. <laughs> My man Jeff Bridges. <laughs> right. In the one case where it doesn't work, it, it's because everything else looks abstract. It doesn't look like it belongs in our world mm-hmm. it looks otherworldly and that's why it works yeah because the older tron the older tron the one that came out first that was in the 80s right and so even if you're trying to base it off of that everything has advanced so much absolutely by the time you get to 2009 2010 whatever you want a preconceived notion of the original tron it's gonna have gotten better so it's not like the film came out in 20 in 2005 or even the year before right right and you're trying to compare it like you don't really know what to the concept of the grid and these light cycle machines is going to be because right before they looked just because of the time like they didn't look as technologically advanced and now you have you know these beautiful lights and like whenever somebody crashes into the light of the, of the light cycle they right. pixelize and it actually looks great and it doesn't just the light itself doesn't shatter but it almost liquefies which is a really cool effect oh to watch God, and it's, so it's incredibly cool. satisfying i kind of want to drink that it looked really tasty to me you would drink anything yeah anyway um sorry if you're listening to this mom uh, <laughs> Hi, Dr. Bajwa. So, again, because it looks artificial, it doesn't look like it's not trying to be photorealistic. You know, there are some movies I think that don't hold up from the same era. Um, a lot of superhero movies that use a ton of CGI from like around this time, mm-hmm. like especially something like The Incredible Hulk, which is I was about to say that. It, yeah, and there's a lot of reasons why that movie looks like shit. Um, but the CG does not hold up not well. At all. Not at all. Um, 
and again, so like again, to go back to another film that is was really praised for his special effects that came out around this time, I think actually the same year, um, Avatar. Uh, say what you will about the story, it's fair. The special effects oh, hold yeah. up. Un- that movie looks really incredible. Literally more than ten years later. Yeah. Um, and Tron Legacy, I think, is in the same way holds up really well because it, I think it knows its limitations. Other than Clue. Other than Clue, which is obviously <laughs> which is not the their caveat. expertise. The guy who de-aged Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian probably had a chat with the guy who de-aged Kevin Yeah, I'm gonna, drop a, I'm gonna drop a hot take. No. De-aged Luke in The Mandalorian is not, does not look good. It looks bad. It's better than Clue, but it's still not good. No, none of them are good. You look at both of them and you're like, who the fuck is that? Maybe we just shouldn't de-age characters. A concept. Maybe we just shouldn't leave them how they are and just have everyone look for context yeah and maybe that's okay anyway um but it also knows its limitations in the sense that it it, it hides a lot of it in shadow right the black is used to hide and create um, negative space so you don't have to fill in these things with detail that would one overload the computer at the time quite frankly would overload the computer now Mm -hmm. um but would also uh it would draw our eyes away from the light and from the center of the screen um one thing that i think is really cool um, is the way in which this film utilizes um, movement. The uh, movies around this time, particularly action movies, were really guilty of like the shaky cam stuff because this is coming off of uh, like the Bourne era, right? I, I want to say that the Bourne Ultimatum, the final movie in the Bourne trilogy, came out in 2006, maybe 2007? Around that time period, like later 2000s. Right, and the Paul Greengrass movies, um, excuse me, like Bourne Supremacy particularly... Um, is kind of, you know, they, they were really guilty of the shaky cam of, and it works in Paul Greengrass's films because Paul Greengrass is a good director. Um, but movies, you know, like uh, anything made by Olivier Megaton is just, it looks like shit. It's, it's incomprehensible. It's made to look fast, um, but it's just because they don't have a good uh, stunt choreographer. The one thing I will give Tron Legacy praise for is the fight scenes. Even oh, even the hand-hand uh, fight scenes like the ones in the club with Zeus mm-hmm are played out in these long, wide takes where the actors are really, the actor stunt doubles, are doing these fight scenes and you can tell what moves they're doing. Yeah. This would, I mean, this is later, you know, built on by, like, John Wick and Atomic Blonde, which, you know, ushered in a new era of action films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm not going to get into that right now because I have a whole diatribe on that. But I really do have to give praise to um, the fight scenes. They don't necessarily, it's not average like the other movies where it did not settle for being just plain in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the action scenes involving um, the, the the light cycles and then later the light planes as they're getting... Everyone forgets that the light planes exist in this movie and that fu- they fucking rule. They're so subtle, but they're the so The bad there. guys have the jetpacks and the yeah. Kevin's plane, it like turns blue when he puts the disc in. And it's just so, and the 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 light ribbons that are that solidify. I completely, even I completely forgot about Look that. at the coolest. They look so cool, and that the fact that they're solid, so you could fly into them and crash and die while yeah. you're flying. Something about I, I'm just ranting. I just it just same looks light, so cool. Same light stuff, like from the tails that you could just crash. Exactly. Into yeah, it's such a cool. It's it's such a it's such a cool effect and it looks amazing. But even the the fight scenes in that, like, it'd be so easy to just cut corners and show you know, Sam firing a gun and then an explosion and a guy flies off. But it shows it in these massive long takes where, 
you know, there's these big wides where they're floating through like what's supposed to be water um, or flying through like above water. And, you know, they're spiraling up into the air and dropping out of the sky. And it's these massive wide takes, which you don't get, you didn't get a lot of at the time because it was hard to do and it was, it wasn't cheap. But again, because you can do this in the computer and you're using, you know, your limitations with the negative space, with dark atmosphere, um, you're not having to fill in nearly as much detail. So you can pull off these big wide shots um that you wouldn't necessarily be able to uh one if you were in person or if it was during daylight no not to mention that the actors or the stunt doubles were you know you see that they're actually trained in what they're doing like you don't really right. have to fill in anything with cgi with special effects and so you have these long takes of sam cora and kevin fighting right even in the end when you see kevin and clue fighting and they're very intentional with their movements. So when they pull out the disc that they have on their backs and they throw it like a boomerang, mm-hmm. you know, it's all very intentional. It's like the move of the arm, the flick of the wrist, everything right. and is the, very intentional. Yeah, and even the action in the, the, the kind of morphing gladiator ring between Rinsler and um, Sam mm-hmm. and all of the fights that come before that, they're, they, they, the action is played... So again, this is this seems so simple when I describe it, but it is something that so many movies fundamentally do not understand, which is this simple understanding of left to right. Mm-hmm. James Cameron does this really well, like in Terminator, um, in Terminator Two: Judgment Day, uh, uh, the the good Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger is the T uh, the T eight hundred is fighting the T one thousand, played by um, Fuck Patrick Patrick Fitzgerald. I can't remember his name. Damn it, um, Robert Patrick. Yes. And um, they are going at each other. They're meeting for the first time in the hallway. Um, and for the rest of the movie, um, the the characters are moving either from left to right or from right to left. And the action is played in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're never confused as to the geography, which is so important in an action scene, sure. is knowing the geography because geography creates tension, right? If I know that the guy who's going to shoot me is only two feet away from me and the audience knows that too... That's a lot more intense, and it's the you need that intensity. Otherwise, it's just flash for flash's sake. It's why, by the 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 last act of a Transformers movie, I don't give a shit, and I fucking love the Transformers movies. But at a certain point, I'm like, I don't care because I don't, don't know what's going on. I was about to mention Transformers that it's like quite literally like shooting the gun, seeing where it hits. It's just over. It's just overload. Yeah, it's just overload. Because Michael Bay was like, I'll do this for however much money, and I'm gonna make a fuck ton of money. Right, and I'll go to bat for Michael Bay any day. But that's beyond the point. But I think. You know, uh, again, the the film really understands its geography well, particularly in those gladiator fights. Um, understanding the left to right, right, Rinsler is on the left and Sam is on the right when we pull back to those wides, and it's keeping you there. Even when it's in close-ups, they're off to the side to communicate that geography, and that's really important, and that's what leads to the fight being so cool. It could have been a really big missed opportunity, um, but instead it's it, it, it the, the fight pays off. Like, it's sick. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. And I think that's what's really um, just, it, it, it blows me away every time I watch it, genuinely. I'm not just saying that because I have to defend the movie. I genuinely really, really admire the action scenes in this in this film. And it, it would, I think it would, if it had better character writing. Oh my God. If you could bring someone in, um, if this movie were made today and it just had better, like just tweak the characters. Yeah. If you got. If you, if, if, if you got a uh, Ryan Johnson or before it turned out that he was a total piece of shit, a Joss Whedon or someone like that come in and touch up the script and give the characters more uh, uh, emphasis, mm-hmm. 
purpose. I think you could have a really, really, inc- I think you could have a really incredible movie on your hands. I think you could actually, because like this movie, the characters fall flat. Mm-hmm. It still was like, you know, solid reviews. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Like people didn't panic. It's not movie. a bad movie by no, any means. it's just forgettable, means. you know, which is sad. I mean, for us, it's not forgettable. No. Like, we're obviously talking about it, but for a lot of people, like they think of Tron and they're like, oh, the first one that came out in the 80s. They don't think of Tron Legacy that came out. Even then, I don't know if they'll think about the one in the 80s. It, it doesn't really baby. have a passionate fan base. It's just I don't... a video game. Yeah, pretty much. And, the, and if there are comics. Right. The arcade, it? yeah. It's, game, yeah that's all, that's but even then, that was not the cultural phenomenon that something like Star Wars was, where it deserves the Lega sequel. Like, Chon was kind of coming out of nowhere, and I think their perception was at the time that it was just a cash grab by Disney. And it, I mean, yeah. it technically was, right? It was, it, yeah, was, it was a Lega sequel trying to capitalize on a franchise, that up on, on a movie that people had nostalgia for back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, we were hitting that 30-year cycle. Literally, we were about to run into the decade where everything, everything. was a reboot of Absolutely something everything. from the 80s. Yes. And now yeah. we're getting into that 90s, right? So we had things like Captain Marvel, we had the Full House reboot, blah, blah, blah. And now we're going to get into the early 2000s. Oh, my. So we're I'm on our we're on our way to literally being nostalgic, actually being nostalgic about our own childhoods. I'm so proud of seeing what happened in my childhood. I don't think that's <laughs> like, but no, yeah, you look. You know, the point of this the point of this film is that, or the point that we're trying to make about this film is that there's so much depth to it that we see that obviously could have been touched up with the script, like making Sam more than one dimensional. Like I think that he was more one dimensional than Cora, and he was supposed to be a real human. Yeah, I mean, he, he is the weakest character in the film, which is which is a shame because he's he's the protagonist. He's yeah. the main character. Meanwhile, Jeff Bridges has reached Nirvana like twenty years ago. Oh yeah, and he's just been hanging out waiting for somebody. And Clue, who's also computer generated, also has a lot of depth to him, which would be really interesting to explore. Right. And see how he has kind of developed, like, because for all intents and purposes, he's AI, he's artificial intelligence. Right. He was created. And so it's the computer. entire argument as well of like, can artificial intelligence develop the range of emotion that humans can? Like, how can they act? In relativity, in relativity to humans, right? And that again, that'd be super interesting. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the film. But because this film was not as well received by audiences, and it was in such a weird time. Which, by the way, when this film came out, um, it came out from what I recall in late December and early January, which is notoriously the worst time for films to come out. Like there's a three-week right. period between December and January where films that come out in that time are notorious for not being good, for being badly received. They're kind of after Oscar season, and it kind of hits that drive spell before you get into the blockbuster. Right, that's where you get a lot of shitty um, uh, horror movies. Yeah, and, and things, things like that like, people are going to go see because they want to go see a movie. Obviously, now with COVID, right. you don't have that anymore, and everything's going to be released to other distributors like Netflix and Amazon Prime. But... It's interesting because this film was released in that period, but it also wasn't that bad. It was just released as a cash grab, like you said. So it was actually released in uh, December of 2009. Yeah. Um, So it was in time for the holiday season, um, just like your Star Wars um, and things like that. I'm trying to think of another movie that was released during the holiday season, but Star Wars has dominated it for the past five years. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it really has, now you think about it. Yeah, the only only year that did not have one um, was... uh, 2018 it's because solo came out in may um yeah you know so uh, the movie generally just they did not do it they did a marketing push for it it was not massive um it was also did not have the same built-in fan base for something like the rocky franchise or like the marvel movies 
Um, You're not going to rush to go see Tron Legacy. Right. There was not a massive. There was not a massive fan base for it. Exactly. And Daft Punk, because they're actually like in the movie for three seconds. It's so cool. (laughs) They're like disc jockeys at the end of the line club. Yes. And they're in the middle of this fight scene. Zeus is like basically like give me a beat, Mm. and they just start to. Jam and they out. play the song D-Res, which is the song that everyone knows from the album. And they have their freaking, they have like their signature robot heads on. And it's perfect for this movie. It does. It it's works. It's one of my favorite parts. It's so good. Yeah. It's and perfect. So there's an article that I have pulled up um, from Birth Movies Death uh, by uh, Scorekeeper, who's a, a writer for them who talks about, you know, the scores in movies. And uh, one of the things that he talks about, he's like, uh, when I, when I was going to see this movie when i heard it was coming out i thought it was just a stupid cash grab by disney to try and capitalize on a franchise that no one gave a shit about um and um you know he says what few positive spikes piquing my interest were completely eroded away when it was announced that daft punk was composing the score um so he was not interested daft punk actually lowered the already low uh, enthusiasm that he had for the movie and and you can't blame him right because these are the guys who you know they hadn't done get but they this movie kind of legitimized them in a way yeah. It did not have this massive cultural revolution that, you know, um, something like this, the, the social network did for Trent Reznor. Yes. Um, but rather, it did legitimize them in the sense that they, you know, they got, you know, they were able to come back and do, um, they were able to come back and, and, and do uh, Get Lucky. They put out that whole album, which was like widely regarded as a, as a huge hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, beforehand they had, you know, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, right. which is great. And then One More Time. Right. But until that, you know, other than that, they were like kind of like not even a one hit wonder, but people didn't really recognize them. And it wasn't until this film where people recognized kind of like this techno vibe that was Daft Punk and right, allowed right. them to release Get Lucky yeah. and one of their signature albums, which is Random Access Memories, which came out in 2013. Okay, yeah. Which is regarded as one of their best albums because it also has sound bites in the middle of each song or in between songs that explains certain aspects of their songs which okay. I, you know, I didn't know that yeah like freshman year me was geeking out about this for no reason okay and and it's interesting and it's beautiful because you, you take these two guys who you kind of didn't know about before tron legacy and this bummer of a movie that nobody went to see made these two guys famous like with robot heads like nobody knew who the hell these guys were like i can't even tell you the names of these guys even though you told me earlier but i recognized their music and it was so popular that even Pharrell Williams later on was like, I'll collab with you guys for Get Lucky. Right. Yeah. Because if there's one thing that got famous from this movie, it is the score. Oh, um, I listen to the score all the time. There's like, there's a few scores that I listen to when I'm studying um, or when I'm, you know, doing anything that I need concentration for like that I don't Steve really want to listen to the It's Steve Jobs, <laughs> The Social Network, and Tron Legacy. I've also started to listen to the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack. I don't love it. That's it's totally too fair. Ominous. It's too um, ominous for me. It's like it makes me anxious. It's kind of like listening to Dunkirk's. It's kind of like, like it's kind of like Blade Runner. Um, yeah, <laughs> it it's makes like, you nervous. I, I think I listen, it's like Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and then Dunkirk. Right. Like there's something about like the ticking of the clock. Right. That I'm just like, who is late? It is not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna make you nervous. I, yeah. In Spanish, like I'm not gonna reference that. I mean, that's in Spanish. But yeah, no. I mean, I. I could talk circles about this score for days. I it's, think it's phenomenal. Um, if there's one song, if you haven't listened to it in in a, in a long time, listen to the song "Derezzed," um, and also an underrated track on the on the um, on the, the the soundtrack for for Tron Legacy is um, I believe it's called "Adagio for Tron," or it's the beginning of oh, it's the yes. first track on the on the album. Um, it starts off slow. It has like a short monologue with Jeff Bridges, but the opening riff, the kind of Tron theme. Da-na. 
Right. It smacks. <laughs> it's a really great theme. And it's like, it was like, what does he say? He's like, in the beginning, there was the riff, and I got it. Donna. Right, yeah. So good. It's just it's it's Chills. it's the perfect amount of oh cheesy goodness that you just want from this type of movie. It's unapologetic in that sense. It's not. It doesn't have a massive grand statement that it needs to make, and you know that's totally fine. I mean, we talked enough about the Jesus and Satan imagery in it, um, but it, it it is genuinely, I think, a good time. Yeah, like they, they, uh, that's like the fun. 80s nostalgia that they wanted was like this, Absolutely. the grit and I went in. Like that is what they were aiming for. Yeah, and, and it, it hits that kind of synth wave Ugh, riff. It, it really gets into it. So and I think good. it's a ton of fun. Ugh. Yeah, and, and you know, like we've said, like a, I think we've said five times in this episode, the score is what is best remembered from this. Yeah, film. like unfortunately it's not Olivia Wilde for Cora or Jeff Bridges, who again, Jeff Bridges literally won an Oscar not even a year later for a crazy heart. Right. When he had facial hair. Coincidence? I think not. Right. It's the same rule like with uh, Bruce Willis. Like when he has hair, he's trying, and when he doesn't, he's not. Yeah, like when he goes to Die Hard, he's like, I'm just here for shits and giggles. Well, the first two Die Hards, he has hair. But first three Die Hards. Anyway. Facial hair or like hair hair? Hair hair. Oh, I'm talking head right, hair. Because right. like he's good, he's that good that. in Moonrise Kingdom oh, where he God. has hair. I love he's bad in literally every what everything after Moonrise Kingdom. That he doesn't have hair. There's one movie uh, Unbreakable. Yeah. Okay, he's he's good in Unbreakable. All right, that's the exception that makes the rule. Whatever. So overall, I think we can kind of gather our closing statements on Tron Legacy. I think this is a vastly underrated film. If you haven't seen it in a while, I would highly recommend going back and watching it. Uh, I, I you know it, it is a I, I think I, I think I'm comfortable in saying that it is a technical marvel. I think it really holds up. The score is phenomenal. The visuals and you know not even just the special effects, but genuinely the set design, the actual physical sets are incredible. It was nominated for an Academy Award, and I'm gonna quickly look that up because I think it might have been sound mixing or it might have been actually set design. Yeah, they got nominated yeah. for. It was it was one of the uh, the technical Oscars that it was nominated for, and I think it's it it really just. Um, doesn't get the credit it deserves. Um, and again, you know, it's okay. Like, it's not an amazing movie, but it is a good movie. And I think it does. Um, we need to celebrate the the kind of middle-of-the-road, just solid movies. Your Ant-Mans, your... Ant-Man. Um, Ant-Man. Ant-Man rules. Um, your Ant-Mans, your Tron legacies, your crazy rich Asians, just like your solid... Um, or you're, you're always be my maybes. You're kind of just like solid, good, enjoyable movies that, you know, they're not going to break your heart. They're not going to make you angry. They're just, they're there to, you know, they're movies. They're great. Um, or excuse me, they're good. You know, no, I'm going to be happy walking, walking away from watching Tron Legacy because I like this movie a lot. Spoiler, like Kevin dies, but even then you're like, eh, he didn't have facial hair, it's fine. Yeah. AP, any closing thoughts on Tron Legacy? (laughs) Um, it's on Amazon Prime for three ninety nine. It's also on Disney Plus, for the record. On Disney Plus, for those of you who are real adults and have Disney Plus, um, it is on Disney Plus. And are we sure the litmus test for being an adult is having Disney Plus? Yeah, no, I'm. You know, like I like kind of what Daniel said already. Very underrated, very underappreciated technological marvel, um, and just like very, you know, when you take you deconstruct a film from its essence, which is this big picture, you have. The sound mixing, the set design, you have the actors, and not every component of this film is going to be amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you are really going to enjoy it. It's a good time. It's a great, you know, while we're still in the middle of, I don't want to date the episode, but I'm going to, while we're still in the middle of a pandemic, it is a fun, good time that I think you really uh, treat yourself to watching. And to finish things off, 
even though it's not a perfect movie, to quote a great man, no. Kevin Flynn, the thing about perfection is that it is unknowable. It's impossible, but it's also right in front of us all the time.